Tom Switzer here and welcome to Between the Lines where we help you make sense of Australia's place in the world. Now this week marks one of the most devastating single events in the history of war and human history. A short time ago an American aeroplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East. That's the voice of US President Harry Truman announcing the first ever use of the atomic bomb on a city. As the bomb dropped, buildings were instantly vaporized. 80,000 people died in an instant and many more perished as a fireball engulfed the city, destroying everything for miles. This week is the 75th anniversary of the bombings of both Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and we'll be discussing the legacy of those events later on in the show. But first to one of the biggest controversies over the last week, the battle over free speech on Australian university campuses. Elaine Pearson was interviewed by the media department at the University of New South Wales about the human rights implications of Hong Kong's new national security law. As Australia Director at Human Rights Watch and an adjunct law lecturer at the university, she expressed concern about the laws and called on the United Nations Secretary General to appoint a special envoy in Hong Kong. Well, it's hardly a very controversial stuff in a democracy like Australia, right? Or so you'd think. Well, after the article went online, the pro-Chinese Communist Party students at the university, they demanded the article be removed. You see, it caused offence. It was hurtful to the communist government in China. Now, the university caved in and pulled the article. Only after an outcry in the press was the article reposted. So how did we get to the point when one of Australia's leading universities agrees to political censorship in favour of another nation state? Elaine joins me now. Elaine, welcome to Between the Lines. Great to have you back on the program. Thanks, Tom. Now, the article is back on the University of New South Wales website, but with caveats that the views expressed do not represent the views of the university. Are you happy with this outcome? Well, I'm glad that they put it back up, um, but I am pretty disappointed at the university's feeble response. I mean, I think, you know, the views expressed in that article are views about the human rights situation in Hong Kong. And I think, you know, that shouldn't be something that should be controversial. And, you know, I'm, I was a bit surprised, actually, that the university was so quick to distance themselves um, from those views. And I think, you know, I presume that the ferocity of the campaign by the pro-Chinese Communist Party students really took them by surprise. Um, but I think, you know, now the question really is, you know, how is UNSW going to respond to this? And I think the students, you know, really are looking to see what is going to be the, the public response and, you know, what next is the university going to do to address these issues. Mind you, this is not the only incident of academic freedom being compromised. Can you tell us about some of the other cases? Yeah, I mean, Human Rights Watch has actually been documenting Chinese government-led threats to academic freedom since 2015, not just in Australia, but universities all around the world. We've looked at cases in the US, the UK, Canada, France, and right here. And what we've seen is that there is, um, you know, universities are in a 
tight bind because they've become quite dependent on foreign students, many of those students coming from China. Those students have a very different worldview, many of them. Um, and, you know, when they come here, um, you know, obviously, you know, coming here should come with a guarantee of academic freedom and what, you know, these should be quite basic things for an Australian university education. But in reality, if those students try and, for instance, join protests on campus about Hong Kong or Xinjiang, um, they are often then reported to um, the Chinese consulate. Um, so they are very afraid of doing anything like that. They just try and keep their heads down. And, you know, you only have to look at the controversy that's happened on UQ with Drew Pavlou and how he has been treated to see that, you know, we, you know it's, it's not a very impressive response from the universities to, to safeguard free speech and academic freedom on these sorts of sensitive topics like Xinjiang, you know, like Hong Kong and like human rights in China. Now, you mentioned Drew Pavlou. He was expelled from the University of Queensland in part um, for organising, what was it, very noisy pro-Hong Kong protests? Is that right? Well, he's been suspended. So I think, you know, the initial... Um, it's a six-month suspension. That's it's right. It's a six-month suspension. So, you know, he has been, you know, he's had, you know, been a pretty provocative campaigner. You know, some of his methods maybe have been a bit unorthodox. But at the end of the day, you know, look at what happened to him on, on that campus. I mean, mm. there were fistfights erupting at UQ between the different student groups. You had, you know, pro-CCP students, you know, supporting the Communist Party, trying to tear down, um, you know, the, the messages from pro-Hong Kong democracy supporters. And the only person who's actually, you know, suffered any um, retaliation or reprisals is, is Drew himself. And so, you know, we want to see universities really safeguard academic freedom and free speech. And I think that means also acting against those who are intimidating or harassing uh, others on campus and making the campus a safe space um, to express all sorts of different views. Now, in your case, a lot of the outrage amongst the Chinese students was expressed and organised, I understand, on Chinese social media platforms like WeChat, uh, which are now apparently watched by Beijing. I mean, to what extent are you concerned about those platforms like, like WeChat? And I think the other one is, uh, is it Weibo? Weibo? Weibo, yes, that's right. Yeah, I mean, that, they, these were the platforms where they organised. Um, look, you know, if, if students want to express a different view, you know, an opposing view, that's fine. I think, you know, where I'm concerned is, you know, the extent to which this campaign became one of intimidating and harassing other students who expressed different views. And as I understand it, there were threats made that they would report people to the Chinese consulate um, for expressing those views. So, you know, I think the universities actually really need to monitor um, their social media channels and not just use them as a means of advertising for, you know, potential new students to come to the university, but also make sure that those channels, you know, are being you know, are being, are being watched, you know, not to, to censor free speech. But as I said, you know, where that free speech is crossing the line, um, I also think they just need to be clear to the students, you know, what, what that means. And it means, you know, going to UNSW means being exposed to, to different views and you are free to discuss and debate those views, but you're not free to shut down um, the views of others. Of course, uh, Elaine, uh, universities in Australia, and this is no great secret, they've become increasingly dependent on, 
overseas students for their budgets. Some have more diversified student bodies, but others like the University of New South Wales, and we're obviously talking about the University of New South Wales because of your special case this week, they're heavily concentrated on the Chinese market. Now, since COVID, uh, UNSW has been one of the hardest hit by travel restrictions that recently made nearly I think 500 staff redundant. Do you think this budget anxiety affected their handling of the issue? Elaine Pearson. Yes, I mean, I think this reliance on the revenue from foreign students is something that, you know, all universities are facing now. And so it, it is putting them in a difficult position. But I think that's why actually universities need to have a unified front on this. I think they really need to look at their existing, um, you know, codes of conduct. They don't actually deal with these issues um, mm. of foreign students who might come from a very different worldview. And so, you know, what I've suggested to UNSW and to many other universities in Australia is to adopt a 12-point code of conduct specifically mm -hmm. on these issues. You know, and they need to be alive to these issues. They need to incorporate it more into the orientation when new foreign students are coming to campuses so that they, you know, really understand what academic freedom means, where the lines are, and they need to sort of monitor and safeguard for, you know, acts of intimidation or harassment because, you know, I'm not so worried about myself, but I'm more worried about other students on campus who will see how this situation has developed and then they might be too scared to speak out on Hong Kong or Tibet in the classroom or other academics who might think twice about taking a media call on Hong Kong because they'll be worried about the potential backlash. So, you know, I think universities really need to take a stand on this and, it, you know, it, it needs to be done, you know, jointly, I think, by, by all Australian universities. Yeah, well, Clive Hamilton has been a past guest on Between the Lines. When uh, he raised these issues several years ago, uh, he was often uh, attacked for overstating his case grossly. Do you think that uh, Clive Hamilton now looks increasingly vindicated? Well, yeah. I mean, I think Clive Hamilton has raised, you know, some very important points, um, you know, in his advocacy about the extent of Chinese government foreign interference on Australian soil. And, you know, we shouldn't be surprised by that. We've seen how this has played out in politics. We've seen how this has played out, you know, in, in trade and and, and that sector. And, you know, now we're seeing it play out in the university sector. So, you know, we shouldn't be surprised by this. I think we've seen the Chinese government, you know, show incredible repression inside um, China and now, you know, in places like Hong Kong. And we are now seeing the Chinese government really throw its weight around uh, with respect to, you know, its relationships with other countries. And I think other countries really need to, to step it up. I think for too long, you know, the Australian government and many governments have really been blinded by the trade relationship with China and have been, you know, unwilling to, to raise human rights concerns. Well, now it's an, you know, important opportunity for countries to band together and, and really start to, to, to press for action on those issues. So difficult for Australia. China is our largest trade partner. And of course, during the first six months of the year, our exports to China surged during the pandemic. Um, now, given the increasing tensions between Canberra and Beijing, Elaine, uh, do you think the government should encourage universities to limit the proportion of mainland Chinese students in their overall student body? No, I don't think this is a question of limiting uh, students because, you know, I mean, this is not an issue of, of all Chinese students. I mean, I've spoken to, you know, Chinese students who are very worried about that and who've said, you know, I've come to 
Australia to to get you know an Australian education and to be able to speak up on on these issues. So I think we need to be quite careful. I think what we want to do is to ensure that those Chinese students do feel welcomed, that they're not isolated, that they're not dependent on the pro Chinese Communist Party um, organised. Um, the CCSSAs, the Chinese uh, Students and Scholars Associations, that they're not too dependent on the Chinese consulate. Um, and I think it's about making it a more welcoming space, but also being very clear, um, you know, what free speech and academic freedom means in an Australian context. Okay, my guest is Elaine Pearson. She's the Australia Director at Human Rights Watch. Elaine, it would be remiss, of course, if we uh, ended the interview without talking about the issue that uh, uh, raised all this media attraction this week, and that, of course, is Hong Kong and the new national security law. Um, that's what, what's uh, clearly sparked this outcry. Now, you want a UN special envoy appointed to Hong Kong. What good will that do? Well, I mean, I think, you know, given that the Chinese government has been, you know, so closed down to having uh, human rights monitors on the ground and, you know, has been completely dismissive of human rights concerns, having a UN special envoy will ensure that there is independent international accounting of how the national security law is being enforced. And I think this will help play a role in hopefully deterring, you know, the, the worst abuses under that law, because this law is extremely draconian. Um, you know, it basically allows for people to be punished for a whole range of activities that would be, you know, lawful and, you know, in fact, unremarkable in most democratic uh, countries. And so I think we have to look at how we can safeguard um, the rights of Hong Kong people now that that law has passed. Yeah, but I can imagine many uh, mainland Chinese uh, students listening into this program, they would say, like many people in mainland China, like the, the, the Beijing government, uh, they would say that um, uh, the, the Western media all too often looks at this issue uh, from an un they're uncritical of the protesters in Hong Kong, they cast them as heroes and they overlook any bad behaviour. How would you respond to those arguments? I mean, I don't, I, you know, my thing with, you know, why the UN should get involved is because this is a violation of the basic law of Hong Kong and the commitments that the Chinese government has made um, of the sort of one country, two systems. And the national security law totally flies in the face of that. So for the UN not to act, you know, I think is, is, is problematic. And we've seen the UN act, you know, with respect to, you know, similar violations of international law in other countries. So, you know, for instance, they did set up an envoy on Crimea, um, you know, after the Russian invasion of, of Crimea. And that actually did play, again, quite an important role um, just in documenting the human rights violations and ensuring there is some level of accountability for those violations. So that's also what we'd like to see here. That was Elaine Pearson. She's Australia Director of the Human Rights Watch and Adjunct Professor of Law at the University of New South Wales. You're listening to Between the Lines with Tom Switzer, making sense of Australia's place in the world. This bomb has the strength of 20,000 tonnes of TNT. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. Well, at 8.15am on August 6, 1945, the US Air Force dropped the little boy uranium fission bomb on central Hiroshima, making it the first city ever to be destroyed by a nuclear bomb. On August 9, Nagasaki became the second. And when the bomb exploded, around 30% of Hiroshima's population, they were killed instantly. 
Many more died in the months and years to come. Now, the bombs brought to an end to World War II, but the world was horrified at the human cost. Hiroshima has since become a byword for nuclear holocaust, forever linked to the words never again. Now, this week marks the 75th anniversary of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Joining me to reflect on the legacy of those events are Toshi Hidachi. Toshi is assistant professor at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service and the author of Political Fallout, Nuclear Weapons Testing and the Making of a Global Environmental Crisis. Welcome, Toshi. Thank you for having me. And Michael Gordon is Professor of History at Princeton University and co-editor of a new book called The Age of Hiroshima. Welcome, Michael. It's very good to be here. Now, Michael, the great fear of the nuclear age, this is the period after World War II when the US dropped the bomb, the, the great fear was that the nuclear weapons would become a common part of conventional warfare. But in the 75 years since Hiroshima and Nagasaki, there's not been a single bomb dropped in a conflict. Question, is this because deterrence works or have we just been lucky? Uh, I would say we've mostly been lucky. Uh, it's quite rare that there are conflicts between nuclear armed nations. The major example is a 1969 border conflict between the People's Republic of China and the Soviet Union. So there haven't been many occasions for things to escalate, and there's a strong incentive in those cases to de-escalate. There have, however, been very close near accidents, whether a missile just detonating on its own or people launching, almost launching, in fear of an attack. And there have been plenty of conventional wars that could have escalated that way. So by and large, we've been lucky, but we've been abetted by the fact that there has been an ambient taboo that has grown over the years against nuclear first use, although that is rarely the policy of any nuclear power. Okay. Now, from an Australian perspective, Toshi, Japan uh, was seen as an aggressor in the war, the war crimes but also as a victim because of the utter destruction wrought by the nuclear bombs. How is the war remembered in Japan now? Aggressor and victim. Toshi. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, many in Japan still consider themselves as victims, thinking that mm. Japanese were misled by their government into a disastrous war of conquest. Uh, in this view, Hiroshima stands as the, as the uh, ultimate symbol of Japanese victimhood. But today this victim narrative faces two competing accounts. One is to recognize Japan's acts of wartime aggression, including civilian massacres, forced labor, and sexual violence. Uh, if we see Hiroshima from this perspective, it takes on a whole different meaning, not, not as a national tragedy, but rather as an international event that killed not only the Japanese residents, but also many colonial subjects and uh, allied POWs who were present in the city at the time of the atomic bombing. The other interpretation that has also gained force in Japan is to see the wartime conduct of Japan as an act of self-defense. This, uh, this revisionist narrative recast Hiroshima as the ultimate proof of Western aggression. So, Fitch's interpretation of Japan's dual roles as um, aggressor and victim during the war will gain the upper hand in the future, will depend on how civil society around the world comes together and develops a shared understanding of the complex legacies of colonialism and war in the Asian Pacific region.
And back to the United States, Michael, there's a popular conception that Washington had to drop the bomb, that it was the only way uh, to win the war. Of course, the war in Europe came to an end in May of 45. This is early August of 45. Is that true? I mean, what were President Truman's options? Uh, So this is a great question, and it's one with a lot of confusion around it. Functionally, the only way, the only government that had any power to end the war was the Japanese government, which was in a position to surrender. And the question was, when would that happen? Mm. Would it happen later or earlier? By summer of 1945, it was already clear that the war was militarily lost. Mm. Uh, President Truman and the U.S. government in general had basically six options of what they could do to try and encourage the Japanese government to take that move. There's only two that people usually talk about, dropping the atomic bomb or invading the home islands of Japan. Both of those were on the table. Also, having the Soviet Union inducing them to enter the war as a belligerent, which happened on August 8th, increasing the intensity of firebombing, tightening the blockade of foodstuffs into the home islands, um, and modifying the terms of unconditional surrender to allow Japan to keep the, the emperor. The interesting thing is all six of those happened. Truman pursued all six. And the war ended. It's unclear which ones were determinative, but the point is there wasn't like we had one option or nothing else. The U.S. had plenty of options and it exercised actually all of them. Yeah, on the one level, the target for the bombs was obviously Japan, but on another level, the real target was the Soviet Union. How did the Kremlin view Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Michael. Uh, So really the question here is a small set of people within the Kremlin. Stalin and his closest advisors knew that there was an atomic bomb project going on in the United States for years. They'd found that out from spies from Britain, from spies in the United States, and they had their own uh, uranium enrichment and bomb development program that was going on at, I would say, a medium scale. Uh, What happens after the destruction of Hiroshima is first Stalin... uh, absented himself for a few days. He went into a depression and didn't uh, react to any of his advisors, and then immediately massively escalated the Soviet development of their own atomic bomb. So they were both caught by surprise and not caught by surprise. Mm. It's true that the Americans uh, didn't always think about the Soviet Union as a factor in any decision related to how the war was going to end, but they also very strongly understood that the key issue was trying to get the Japanese government to surrender faster, because the faster they surrendered, the less impact the Soviet entry in the war would have to how the end game would play out in Asia. My guests are Michael Gordon and Toshi Hidachi, and we're reflecting on the 75th anniversary of Hiroshima. Now, Toshi, there are around 150,000 atomic bomb survivors still living in Japan. In fact, as a guest of Japan's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, this would have been in September 2016, I met one of uh, one of the survivors. Now, their role in education and public life has played an important part in shaping Japan's post-war pacifism. Now, as that generation dies out, is the role of pacifism in Japanese politics, is that diminishing, especially in the face of a rising China? Toshi. Mm-hmm. I don't think the passing of the atomic bomb survivors will diminish the strength of pacifism in any short term. The collective memory of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan has been fairly robust and taken deep roots in popular culture. Um, I can think of a good example that is a Japanese animated wartime drama film released just four years ago in 2016 called In This Corner of the World. This fictional account of the wartime life in Hiroshima was a smash hit in the 
box office, the atomic bomb survivors were also active in passing down lessons from the world's first nuclear war to the next generation. The cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki are training many Japanese volunteers as storytellers who share the testimonies of aging victims, and the second-generation survivors are spearheading the efforts for peace and justice. Well, that brings me to today, and really in the last 30 years, at the end of the Cold War, say 30 years ago, the US and, and the Soviets, they signed this Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty known as START. This was President Bush Sr. and Gorbachev in Russia, in the in Soviet Union then, just as it was collapsing. Now, both agreed to significantly reduce their nuclear stockpiles and, of course, the updated treaty between Moscow and Washington, that expires, I think it's February next year. So that's just a few days after the next president is sworn in. Michael, do you think it will be re-signed? Uh, I think that's entirely dependent on the result of the election. Uh, Joe Biden has indicated that he would re-sign the treaty. Uh, the Trump administration has had many opportunities to re-sign the treaty, but they have not taken advantage of those opportunities yet. Russia has indicated that they're very interested in extending it. Yeah, but does, does China's ascendancy complicate things? I mean, I mean, does it make it harder to commit to re-signing START when China's uh, rise continues unabated? Michael? Not in terms of nuclear weapons. The U.S. and Russia have both uh, over 6,000 nuclear weapons. China has just under 300. It has fewer than France. Uh, China's approach to nuclear deterrence has been very different from the arms racing that characterizes both the Russian Soviet and the American situations. The Trump administration's officials have said that they want China on board, but China's position is unless you're going to reduce your atomic bombs to the level of 300 like we have, there's no point in us being in it. It's really between you and the Russians. And that to me, makes sense. Yeah, and that brings us to Japan because Japan, of course, has had the technology and capability to build nuclear weapons since probably the 70s. It's been protected, of course, by the US nuclear umbrella. Um, Toshi, could you see uh, Japan developing its own nuclear weapons, especially given that US staying power in East Asia is not guaranteed? Mm -hmm. Personally, I don't think it's likely that Japan will go nuclear in the near future. But uh, what I can see is a possibility that Japan might join the United States in, in its increasingly militarized efforts to confront the nuclear-armed China and North Korea. Just recently, the Japanese government has publicly stated that it is actively considering the option of developing offensive capabilities to launch a preemptive strike at the enemy's missile base as a necessary deterrent. This not only signals a potential major change ahead in Japan's defense policy since its defeat during, uh, at the uh, World War II, but also is likely to escalate the tension to a dangerous point. And Michael, final question to you. I mean, the big justifications of states having nuclear weapons is their deterrent effect. Uh, but that was closely wrapped in the so-called nuclear taboo. This is the idea that it was wrong to be the first to use nuclear weapons, but you could use them uh, to retaliate. This is classic deterrence. Question, do you think that th that taboo will survive the, the geopolitical changes we're going through in the, uh, the coronavirus period and, and afterwards? Michael? I really hope so. I mean, the taboo has was a gradual evolution over time. And every year that goes by that nuclear weapons aren't used in war reinforces the idea that these weapons are not to be casually used in conflict. 
there have always been countervailing arguments and tensions. The proliferation of North Korea, um, various aggressive moves by China and the South China Sea, uh, the, the nuclear posture review of the Trump administration all push against this taboo. But the, there are overwhelming pushes like the ban the bomb treaty that was passed a few years ago um, at the UN General Assembly that really reinforce this idea. And the more reinforced it is, the more real it is. And there are hopes that it will last even beyond our current geopolitical moment. Michael Toshi, thanks so much for being on ABC Radio to commemorate the 75th anniversary. Thank Thank you. you very much. Toshi Higachi is Assistant Professor at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. He's the author of Political Fallout, Nuclear Weapons Testing and the Making of a Global Environmental Crisis. And Michael Gordon is Professor of History at Princeton University and co-editor of a new book called The Age of Hiroshima. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer, and I hope you can tune in again next week. 